Good morning, and welcome to the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy's live weekly broadcast. I'm Roberta Oster, the Communications Director. Our show, Virginia Interfaith Live, brings you insight and perspective from policy and faith experts, legislators, and community leaders. During these difficult times dealing with COVID-19 and racial justice, our broadcast focuses on economic, racial, social, and environmental justice issues here in Virginia. We will also share resources and opportunities for you to get involved in our work, advancing social justice and helping our neighbors. We will keep you up to date and keep our elected officials accountable. Today, we will address a critical issue that will be a priority for the Virginia Interfaith Center during the upcoming 2021 General Assembly, prenatal care for all Virginia mothers. And I am pleased to introduce our guests. Jill Hankin is a health attorney at the Virginia Poverty Law Center and has worked on these issues for decades. Welcome, Jill. Thank you for being here. And Melanie Rouse, who is PhD and program manager at the Virginia Department of Health in the Virginia Maternal Mortality Review Team. We are so grateful for your work and welcome Melanie. And now our moderator, my colleague and friend, Dora Muhammad, who is our Congregation Engagement Director. Dora? Thank you so much, Roberta, for your introduction. Thank you to both of our guests for joining uh, me today. I'm very, very excited. One of the hats that I wear, um, people thought it kind of disappeared when I became Congregation Engagement Director, but I am still the program manager for our health equity work at the Virginia Interfaith Center. And so I just want to lay out a couple of backgrounds, sort of how did we get here this morning to this conversation? Um, maternal mortality is a national crisis. Um, while worldwide mortality rates were declining, U.S. rates were increasing. In Virginia, Black women died three to four times more than any other racial group. And, um, and that is very personal to me, of course, as a Black woman. But it's also very personal for me in this work at Virginia Interfaith Center. Since 2018, when we began our education around Medicaid expansion, we also integrated some work with helping people apply for Medicaid. And so we worked to get training for people to become application assisters. And in that time, um, the fall of 2018, it was very heartbreaking for me to actually tell women who were immigrant undocumented that they were not eligible and turn them away with very few resources in the community for them to get care. And I'll touch on that a little bit later. But as a result of that, when maternal mortality became a priority announced in 2019 by Governor Northam. I worked with his office and the staff of Office in Health and Human Services. They did a listening tour on maternal health. And we hosted one in Prince William County at the time where I lived. And I was one of the panelists. All three of our female uh, state representatives all had these horrific birth stories. So they all were on the panel with me. And then right before the, the roundtable ended, literally Delegate Elizabeth Guzman interrupted um, the governor's staff as she began to close out and said, we've been here for two hours discussing this. 
but we will not truly be able to affect the racial disparities if we do not find a way to provide care for undocumented women. And I whispered to her, she was two seats away, and I said, there is a way. And so immediately after the panel discussion, we talked and she said, let's do it. I shared with her this budget amendment. At the time it wasn't a budget amendment, that became a budget amendment through Jill Hankin and her guidance with me. And we'll get into that. So I'm, I'm again, so very excited. Um, you know, it's, we've done a lot. We've had at Virginia Interface Center a, a push campaign, as you see the graphics here. And um, earlier this year, Delegate Guzman carried the budget amendment in the House. Senator Evan carried it in the Senate. We had 11 House co-sponsors, six Senate co-sponsors, um, most of them who sat on appropriations or finance committees, but then it failed. Then we reintroduced it during the special session and we launched the push campaign with these beautiful social media graphics that you see. We grew a small coalition of about 10 organizations to advocate with us and join with us to push to make this a priority. And we felt really, really encouraged when last month, the Department of Medical Assistance Services requested the budget amendment as part of their 2021 recommendations to the governor. And unfortunately, we were all very disappointed that it was not included um, in his budget released last week. And so the good part of it is the HAVE Coalition with which Virginia Interface Center is a part of and Jill Hankin co-chairs um, did set this prenatal care for all mothers as one of their three 2021 priorities. So I just wanted to set the stage because having that growing support for through the HAVE Coalition has been a light um, um, for me as we champion this, this, this past year. So I'm really, really encouraged the fact that it's not in the governor's budget, which we thought was gonna be smooth sailing, honestly, it means that we actually have to ramp up a full advocacy effort now for the legislative session. So our aim in this show is to really lay that foundation to educate and we'll talk about how you can help push this forward. Um, so with that, want to introduce again, and some of the, the clear, just clarify their roles. Dr. Melanie Rouse has been a part of a staff member of the chief, and correct me if I'm wrong, the chief medical examiner's office. She serves also as the maternal mortality projects manager. Is that correct? Did I get it right? Yes. Okay. Very good. Okay. So, and like I said, again, Jill is the co-chair of the HAVE Coalition, which stands for Healthcare for All Virginians. And so she's wearing that hat. A lot of the questions I'll be talking to her about will be about the HAVE Coalition. So I wanted to start with Mel. In 2019, the governor um, codified um, the maternal mortality review team, but it was established in 2002. So I just kind of wanted you to talk to us about sort of what was your work around maternal health and maternal mortality before the codification of the team and how has the codification impacted your work? Well, first I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak on this broadcast and have this important conversation with you all. Um, as you said, our team has been established since 2002. And since that time, we have been tasked with identifying all pregnancy associated deaths in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And that is a death of any woman 
who dies within a year of pregnancy, regardless of the outcome of the pregnancy or the cause of death. Um, and we have a multidisciplinary team with representatives from academic institutions, behavioral health agencies, um, hospital associations, also the state medical societies. We have representatives from nurse midwives as well as lay midwives, um, psychiatry and you know domestic violence and action alliance representatives as well. And we all come together to review each one of these cases. Um, we try to gather all the information about the woman's last five years of life. We try to get all records from health providers, social service agencies, um, also mental health providers and substance abuse. And so we take all this information and review all of these cases to assess for factors that contributed to the deaths, including patient factors, community factors, um, provider factors, and also healthcare system factors. We go through all of this information to make recommendations um, based on what we see in these cases to help improve care and maternal health in our state. And since the governor's, since the codification of our team in 2019, what the bulk of what we do hasn't really changed much, but what it did was it added additional seats on the team. So we now have Commonwealth representatives on the team. We have EMS and law enforcement. Um, it also provided us with more support to be able to get better data and be able to disseminate the data throughout the state into providers and healthcare systems in a better way. No, thank you. And I have a follow-up for that. Was there any additional pressure? One of the things that I allowed, you know, the governor's announcement in that the goal um, that he set for the Commonwealth is not just to reduce the racial disparities, but to actually eliminate the racial disparities by 2025. And so to me, that's that is different. Let me say that that's very unique. Um, and so, and it's a, it's a bold and ambitious goal, you know, can you talk about sort of maybe some of the pressures or is there a benefit to that? Has there been an, an advantage of having such a bold kind of mandate and benchmark for the team and really for the administration? Okay. Yes, it definitely is a very bold and, you know, very pie in the sky goal for the five years to eliminate this disparities. But what it has done is it's kind of put an urgency into the work that we do. And so it's enabled us to really reach out and do the work. And you know, when we're reaching out to places for records, they understand why we're asking for these records. So um, it's actually helped to support the work that we do. While it has put a lot of pressure on us, it's also helped to kind of give us a sense of urgency and the additional support from the community and the healthcare systems in general to really effectively do the work that we do. That's that's very interesting. And I actually have to agree with that before I um, toss it to Jill. Um, when I submitted an a, a email, just a question, like an inquiry, one of the requests for information to find out sort of how death certificates are record, um, what are the pregnancy questions, they responded literally within an hour. And I was shocked. So it speaks to that urgency. So much respect and acknowledgement of that effort. And Jill, so I want to ask you, so um, I didn't do it in an introduction. I did it privately, but I, I, I will say publicly, I absolutely love Jill, Jill Hankin. She is a veteran healthcare advocate. And when I started working at Virginia Interface Center, I just absolutely am in awe of just her wisdom and her guidance and just literally her experience teaches and just guides in just such a humble way. So um, literally, so I remember in 2019, what I recall, for the HALF Coalition that fall, as most organizations do, you meet to discuss what your policy priorities will be for the next year. And you all took a vote 
And I saw I had submitted prenatal care and it was like low on the totem pole. And so you all gave the opportunity at the meeting for each of the organizations to, you know, discuss why, you know, what your priorities were and why the Half Coalition should support it. And for those who are not aware, the Half Coalition is roughly about 70 um, statewide organizations. Um, and so I was very nervous coming to that meeting because I was like, man, nobody really knows about this. This is so personal for me. Again, just recalling the faces of the women. And when you started the meeting and talked about your policy priorities for the Virginia Poverty Law Center, you led with the prenatal care. And I accept, I just <laughs> oh yes, I got Jill wants this. So I promise you, I was just giddy at the end of the table. So I really wanted you, to, I never asked you. So I really wanted you to share why back in 20, the fall of 2019, this became, this was a party that you had. Uh, well, thank you, Dora. I, I really appreciate you and your work and the work of the Interfaith Center as, as well. So this is all a, a team effort. And um, I've worked in Virginia for quite a long time. And I understand that very often it takes a long time to effect change. Um, over the time I've worked in Virginia, um, I've seen um, a lot of incremental success. I mean, year after year, sometimes it takes a long time to improve um, uh, eligibility rules in our healthcare programs. Um, there, I have war stories um, uh, from decades ago where um, it, it took three or four years just to get a 20% increase in like an eligibility level. Um, I do a lot of work on our Medicaid program. My main focus is on assisting low income Virginians access healthcare. So over the years, um, it has been my goal to expand the Medicaid program in ways that that program can serve more people. So, um, but, but I've taken an incremental approach and tried to decide, you know, what's most important. So long before the Affordable Care Act um, became law, um, we were working on eligibility issues for older people. We were working on issues for pregnant women and children who were US citizens. Um, then we had initiatives for um, helping pregnant women and children who were legally residing immigrants. Um, and these were things that were finally adopted in Virginia, opening the door to healthcare access for different populations. Then with the uh, adoption of the Affordable Care Act, our focus then turned to the big enchilada, um, which was Medicaid expansion. Um, an opportunity to really open the door for low-income adults who previously had no way to get Medicaid coverage, even if they had zero income. And uh, a lot of people watching this um, show today might remember it took, it took six years to get <laughs> Medicaid expansion through the Virginia General Assembly. And it took efforts of all of the groups that you refer to with the Healthcare for All Virginians um, coalition. It took a long, long time to get the votes we needed to get expansion through, but it happened. Um, 
you know, during the, the long, very lengthy 2018 General Assembly session, that's when Medicaid expansion was adopted for implementation January 2019. And, you know, it's been a great success in Virginia. There are over 470,000 um, low-income adults who now get Medicaid um, through Medicaid expansion. And, and many of those people have just joined up since the spring with the um, onslaught of the pandemic and people losing their jobs and losing wages and suddenly finding themselves in need of health insurance. But that's a long way to get around to our topic today. Um, which is once we got Medicaid expansion, and I, 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 I hope people can appreciate why that needed to be our focus for a long time. But once that happened, um, it was like, okay, well, what's next? And we, we realized that in Virginia, there were still too many people who were uninsured and too many people who did not have access to the Medicaid program. And a big chunk of that population were legal immigrants in Virginia. So Dora, as you know, we spent two years working towards changing um, eligibility rules so that legal permanent residents, people with green cards legally in the United States could get Medicaid without establishing that they had worked in the United States for over 10 years. It was a, a rule called the 40 quarter rule, which was a restriction that only Virginia and five other states had. Well, that took a while, <laughs> and that was <laughs> that was a part of the governor's budget last year, and um, then it was unallotted during the um, special session, and then yes, it was um, adopted again by the end of the special session, and it's taking effect in April. So um, we're very happy about that. It's going to open the door for a lot of legal. LPR immigrants to get Medicaid coverage. So then it's like, well, what, what else needs to be done? And then here we are talking about prenatal care for all women, including women who are undocumented immigrants in the United States. This is an option that's been available to states for over 12 years. 17 states do provide this coverage to undocumented women. Right now, they only qualify for emergency labor and delivery services. Well, I know Dr. Rouse can confirm that showing up in a hospital for just labor and delivery is not the best, it's not the way to have a healthy pregnancy and ensure a healthy outcome. But that's all these women currently can get is emergency Medicaid for just labor and delivery. So what we're promoting now is that these low-income pregnant women whose babies are gonna be US citizens um, can have full prenatal care coverage um, during their entire pregnancies to um, ensure the mother's health and the baby's health. That's a, that was a long introduction, but I think that it was needed. sort of set it the stage for why why we're doing this now. We're trying to still fill fill holes, and this is really one of the exactly a few holes that remains in Virginia where there is a federal option and federal dollars to help pay for. Exactly. No, you hit on all the key points. So I hope everyone was taking notes. 
Um, <laughs> because what's important is that um, this is a federal option that has been available and Virginia just has not taken it. And it was important to lay the groundwork for all the years that we've done the, the, the work through the HAP Coalition because it is about erasing the margins and really reaching the most vulnerable. And the constant asking of the what's next, what's next is so important because people can get obscured or you get caught up in the victory that you have and you forget about the people that's really not touched by the legislation that just passed. And so with that, I wanna say that um, I'm proud that the Have Coalition's priorities for 2021 all deal with immigrant health. And so wanted to let everyone know the URL that's scrolling on the bottom of the screen. You can find a one pager that the HAVE Coalition has put together. Um, it's available on our website about their um, three priorities that includes the prenatal care budget amendment. But I just wanted to give Jill an opportunity to talk about the other two um, priorities around immigrant health. Yes. Um, well, thanks, Dora. Yeah, the two other um, uh, priorities for the Healthcare for All Virginians Coalition um, also um, deal with immigrants' access to health care. Um, one of them would simply raise the age um, for legally residing children um, to get Medicaid. Um, this is something I mentioned earlier. We did get coverage for legally residing children and pregnant women. The state set the age level for children to end at age 19. Federal law allows that um, eligibility level to be as uh, up to age 21. So that's one thing we also want to do because these young people who are legally in the United States, they need continuity of care. And um, the idea of um, uh, keeping them protected after they turn age 19 is really important. Now, some of them will be able to go straight into Medicaid expansion. We're concerned about the ones who will not. And there are categories of immigrants that still won't be able to get full Medicaid without this provision. And then the third priority relates directly to COVID. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, Im all immigrants who meet financial requirements can get emergency Medicaid services. We're really concerned about um, immigrants who for one reason or another are not enrolled in Medicaid or not enrolled in marketplace coverage who need COVID testing and treatment and now vaccines. Um, and the federal um, Medicaid program does allow states to clarify and confirm that the emergency services available through Medicaid also include um, uh, COVID screening testing treatment and vaccines. And we um, would like the state to um, clarify that and say that in a way that will encourage immigrants to come forward because we know how disproportionately immigrant communities have been hurt um, by COVID. Um, it's, it's really shocking. And whatever we can do to let people know that services are available to them for free will help people get the services that they need. And by doing that, it protects everybody else. It protects all of us um, when, when uh, individuals who are uninsured know that they can get services. 
That's very, very important. So I do wanna now narrow in on the prenatal care piece. Um, so I just completed one of our policy briefs um, and I really center one of the recent reports from the maternal mortality review team um, because I found a very, very, um, to me, I felt it was a significant piece of data where there was um, sort of an analysis of the indicators of the different causes of death versus chronic women th that had chronic health conditions and those that did not. And so for those, the cases of women who didn't have any chronic health condition, inadequate prenatal care was the leading cause um, for those women. And so I wanted, you know, Melanie, if you could really talk about, and the title of that report is called The Need for Coordinated Care. And I want you just to talk about, give some background about the work that went into that report. It, I know it was cases between 1999 was it 2016? And so, right in 2019, the report was done in 2019. But just talk about the work. It was. It was. It seemed to me all the data was very, very intense. Um, but that to me, so I used that to me was a baseline indicator of the how important prenatal care is for determining maternal health. And so, but just talk to me the larger scope of that report and um, sort of the different findings that were relevant to the work that advocates should be aware of. So for that report, the purpose of that report was to examine the prevalence of chronic diseases um, amongst cases of pregnancy-associated deaths in women in Virginia. And we wanted to identify any gaps in the coordination of care that were received by these women, and also identify areas for um, in which improvement for the management of these conditions could take place. And what we found was that over two-thirds of our pregnancy-associated deaths had at least one chronic condition. And it's the data show that there was incomplete healthcare coverage outside of the pregnancy, including prior to becoming pregnancy um, and after the postpartum period, as well as um, a lack of coordination, of coordination of care during the perinatal and prenatal period. Um, we found that there was a lack of provider utilization for the management of chronic diseases um, prior to pregnancy that actually carried over into a lack of referrals to specialists and um, other care providers during the prenatal period. And so um, we found that also a lot of these women were left to get care in the emergency departments, um, because as you said, with, without medical insurance, without Medicaid, all that you have is that emergency care. And so a lot of women were ending up in the emergency department and then they were left to nap, they were given referrals to providers, but were left to navigate these on their own. And if you're, if you're in the healthcare system, you know it can be complex. So if you're not familiar with it and you know, haven't worked in it, it can be even more daunting to really navigate that system. And we found that a lot of these women were just left on their own to kind of figure out this whole prenatal care um, situation. And so uh, what we found is that it's gonna require a refined approach to clinical care of pregnant women and also care before pregnancy as well as after pregnancy. Um, we found that the lack of routine healthcare for chronic diseases outside of pregnancy, you know, really contributed to these deaths. And that there were also with limited availability of specialists and women's health providers within specific hospitals, you know, there was a need to use existing technology so that if you were to, if you're pregnant and you go to a hospital where there is no women's health care services, they're able to connect you with a women's health specialist, maybe through telemedicine or other things like that. 
Um, we also found that there was a lot of inadequate um, prenatal care. When we looked at our cases without chronic conditions and with chronic conditions, 13% of them have no prenatal care at all. Um, and about 18 to 20% have inadequate prenatal care. And so that was really the impetus behind this chronic disease report and our push to have better coordinated care and to disseminate this information amongst providers so that we can improve care coordination for all women in the state. So very important. And I just want to reiterate for any of the legislators that are watching now or will watch how disappointed we were that prenatal care was not in the governor's budget and why we need this to pass this session. But even though we that disappointment is there, I do want to acknowledge that I was happy to see one of the recommendations that the maternal mortality review team put at the end of that report was funded by the governor. And that was so that pregnant women can gain access to substance abuse treatment. So I do wanna acknowledge that because that was uh, um, the third or it's the fourth, I think it's the third um, leading cause of death for women with a chronic condition. It is connected to substance abuse. Um, and so that was very important. But so, so there's that impact already happening with your work. I kind of also just wanted to follow up, Melanie, to ask you sort of what other kind of impacts have you seen um, from the team's work thus far? And sort of what work do you anticipate perhaps in 2021, the impact of your work for 2021? From the work that we've done um, thus far, we've seen a lot of organizations and systems reach out to us to get data for their region so that they can more appropriately create policies that ensure that women have appropriate prenatal care and that their care is coordinated throughout the system. Um, what we've also done is we have established a partnership with the VNPC, so kind of the Virginia Neonatal Perinatal Collaborative, to work with, um, take our recommendations from just written recommendations that you know we tell people about to actually implementing them and taking action on them as well. Uh, a game plan. A game plan. Do you all have a game plan for for twenty twenty one? We we started out the conversation how about how big and bold the twenty twenty five benchmark is. So that report again was clear, and even with the goal of twenty twenty five, that addressing the racial disparities and reducing mortality is a very complex, multi layered. Um, problem and the solution itself ref would reflect that. So from systemic to the community level, sort of what's next and sort of in terms of your plan of work? Well, our plan is in 2021, we do plan to re release a report that will highlight the racial disparities that we do currently have in our state. And then we're also going to go from that report to work on what can we do? What are the contributors that we see? And kind of go into the more the detail of the factors that are, you know, making these disparities so great. You know, even if we have a reduction in the overall rates, if we don't actually close the disparity gaps, you know, we're not quite doing our job. So we want to make sure that we are clear on where we are and where we need to go and the factors that are contributing to these cases. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for all the hard work. And Jill, I want to ask you the same question. Um, when we talked, and I forgot to mention this, so I do want to circle back with the contact the email address for the Half Coalition. Um, 
with your 2021 priorities, you all are looking for organizations to sign on to support it. And so if you're interested um, in having your organization um, be on that list, um, please contact the Have Coalition with the email address there. So that is, I definitely know a next <laughs> that you all have. And one another important next that I was very, very excited to see and be a part of is that the Half Coalition has established a racial equity subcommittee um, trying to center health equity in your work. So very excited to be a part of that subcommittee. But can you talk to me about sort of, again, um, centering you know um, the maternal health, but just in general for 2021, what's next? for the HAVE Coalition and also your work around health law at the Virginia Poverty Law Center. Um, I, I do want to um, mention a couple of the other successes that we have had in the maternal and child health uh, arena. Um, and, and, and thank Governor Northam for, for some of those um, other successes. One is that um, last year, the governor did support an extension of postpartum care for women who get their um, services through Medicaid and our famous program. So instead of a very short 60 days postpartum coverage, it's now extended to 12 months. So that along with the 40 quarter uh, elimination of the 40 quarter rule that I mentioned a moment ago um, will take effect in April of 2021. So part of our work needs to be implementation of those changes um, so that people know about it and take advantage of it. Um, another um, piece of Governor Northam's budget that we did support and that did come from the maternal mortality review team um, and, and the uh, listening sessions around the state was um, an inclusion of doula uh, services. Um, Yes. Uh, through the Medicaid program. So we should say thank you for, yeah. for those things that were included in the budget. I mean, doula services have been shown to be very um, successful um, support services for low-income pregnant women um, before, during, and after pregnancy. So um, the, those are things that we also look forward to to, well, the doula provision needs to be adopted by this year's General Assembly and then um, uh, implemented. So um, we, we have a, a lot of advocacy to do um, to promote those three um, policies for immigrants in Virginia. Uh, we know, again, how devastating COVID has been to immigrant communities and African-American communities. And I just hope that the legislators are ready to do uh, everything they're able to do in order to uh, protect communities. And as I said before, protect all of us um, to make sure that people have access to the, the health care that they need. Um, one more comment on the prenatal care services that we will be seeking is that when the mom's enrolled in coverage, the baby, the new infant, the newborn gets automatically enrolled into health insurance from, from day one um, and is eligible for a full year. So that newborn baby, US citizen born to an immigrant mom um, will have a full year of coverage and that's so important for the child's health care. Um, so 
you know, it, it really is a win-win. Um, and part of the reason we were disappointed that this was not in the governor's budget is because according to the Medicaid agency, this would save money. It would save over $2 million um, by providing full prenatal care through the um, um, famous program, the CHIP program. Um, and it would bring in about $7 million of federal dollars. So financially, it was a very um, strong provision uh, that would have saved money. So that's the kind of information we will be providing legislators during session, before and during session, to, to um, advocate for this policy change. It saves money. They usually like that. So let's let's yes. uh, highlight uh, it, it saves money and it saves lives. So there's it's another lives. talking point. So um, I, I, I it sounds like I, a social media campaign about to happen. Yeah. So I, 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 I I'm going to be keeping my fingers crossed. Um, and it, and and especially since it's so related to covid right. People, especially pregnant women are healthy. That's exactly right. And the actual cost is um, LIS estimated it to be approximately just $1 million per fiscal year. So the cost benefit because there's an increased federal matching funds, as Jill just outlined, is a win for um, the Commonwealth. And so again, there's so many reasons why legislators, if you're listening, that we will be contacting you. <laughs> and we are encouraging everyone at, at the end to get contacted. So before um, I close out and go into my closing PSA, which I was about to, um, wanted to take some questions from the viewers who have been patiently waiting. So our first question, what are some resources for prenatal mothers without proper coverage can use here in Virginia? Jill, do you want to take that? Yeah, well, well, there are um, free clinics and community health centers all around Virginia and also um, local departments of health that can hopefully um, steer people in the right direction to get prenatal care services. So there, um, uh, but, but it, it's hard when you're not insured, you're looking for um, affordable services and um, you know, people do have to use um, things like clinics in local communities to get the care they need. That is correct. And that was part of my heartbreak um, as a resident in Prince William County, having to, to tell women that they were not eligible for Medicaid. There was only one clinic um, that was, oh, I think we lost Jill, um, that um, and it was in Alexandria, like it wasn't near, it was not near and, and it wasn't a statewide network. And so, and I, and it was under through ANOVA um, hospital and I was kept searching to see if there's any kind of equivalence to, to, to the services that they provided to undocumented women that, but that was really the starship of the resources that we were able to give, but it's, there is not a statewide um, setup as well. Is there any other questions? Do you have any other questions? I don't see any. Well, that is good. Well, I wanted to thank you all 
again for joining us. I wanted to close out before I do my closing thought, you know, I always do a closing PSA on sort of my next for 2021. And so I mentioned the help that we're going to need. So part of the fact that um, that we are going to have to have a strong advocacy push, we have reactivated our petition of the push uh, campaign. There is the link. And so don't just want the viewers watching this to sign it. Um, I want you all to circulate it within your organizations, circulate it within your congregations. And if there's clergy leaders who are watching this, I want you to take lead on it. And I'll get to more of that in my closing thought before I get emotional. But that is one of the key anchor pieces because our legislators need to hear from you. They need to hear from the constituents. And so the signatories on the petition will be sent to all of the legislators that are part of the appropriations and finance committees in the House and Senate, um, as well as well as your. And when you sign the petition, it will go to your actual legislator, legislator as well, because all legislators, of course, will be voting for it if it is passed out of committee onto the floor um, for a vote. And so, um, wanted to say that the second what's next for me is our annual day for all people, which is our annual advocacy event. Usually it's a day this year, I mean, for 2021, it's going to be a week because everything is virtual. And I'm putting together a workshop called Maternal Health and Women of Faith. And I do want to say this, even though my initial target is women of faith, the maternal health is not just a women's issue because um, I don't know, unless men out there who are listening to this do not care about their wives, mothers, sisters, friends dying within a year of giving birth, if they do not have an investment in wanting to see every woman be able to give birth and live to tell it, then maybe you don't care about maternal health. But I'm beginning the conversation with women of faith during our day for all people. So want you all to register for that. Um, I'm looking, my goal for 2021 is to actually develop and equip maternal health advocates from within congregations to join this effort beyond what I'm able to do as one staff person at Virginia Interfaith Center. Because again, this is a long complex process that is gonna be multi-year. And so want to be able to duplicate myself basically um, and duplicate people who are able to take the information that you heard today and then begin to spread it and educate and get other people um, advocating for all of the maternal health intervention interventions that were discussed and still some that still have to be explored and defined. So those are my two key next. So I'm gonna shift to my personal closing thought, um, but again, wanna say my heartfelt thanks to Jill and to Mel for joining me today. Definitely look forward to continued working with you all and hopefully moving this prenatal care budget amendment across the finish line during this upcoming session. And so my closing thought. So not yet, Roberta. I'll tell you when to put that photo up. So to me, as I prepare to do the show, it was very poignant for me that this is a season where Christians this week, in a couple of days, in fact, will be celebrating the mother of the birth of a baby boy. And so maternal health and is primed in this week. Um, and so as I began to reflect on that, I also recalled from my family's Muslim faith tradition 
on hadith, which is a say, saying of Prophet Muhammad in Islam um, that speaks to how we honor mothers. And the hadith goes, there was a man who approached Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and asked him, who is most deserving of my good company? And the prophet said, your mother. And then the man asked, then who? And the prophet answered, your mother. And then the man asked again, then who? And the prophet answered, your mother. And then he said, then who? And finally, on, after three times, the prophet said, your father. So mothers, I grew up with an understanding and appreciation of mothers having more, um, deserving more from us, three times more than our fathers. And so I bring all of that to inform my work. And as I shared in the beginning about how this work shaped from my heartbreak of having to tell, and I've seen the women, these are women, these are, these are not imaginary numbers, even though as we emphasize for legislators, they like to see dollars as an impetus for legislation and passing legislation. I want to ask the legislators to try to picture the faces of these women. Now you can put up the picture. This is a picture of me and my mom. And so when I ask you all, and I'm getting emotional. To support the petition, I can't put up the faces of the women that I have had to say no to. But this is a picture of my mom. I am a second generation immigrant. She's here in this picture, 28 years old, a young immigrant from the Caribbean. She told me I'm about three months old in this picture. And so I asked, as you petition, your legislatures, which in whichever form, whether you do it with us or not, but as you circulate the petition, and 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 I ask that you think of the one. There's a estimated one thousand women in Virginia that this budget amendment would help. And so again, I can't show their faces, but I wanted to show you my mother's face, because as her daughter, I know the yearnings that she had as a 28-year-old bearing me. I know her fears as an immigrant in this country. I knew and I know her dreams and I know her prayers. And I know that all of that shaped me while I was growing in her womb. I'm born from them and they infuse every breath that I take and they inform my work. So I want you all to think of the 1,000 women and I don't know, I want to be just as big and bold as the governor's benchmark for 2025 and really want to appeal and say, are there, I'm wondering, 1,000 people in Virginia who will urge the legislators to erase these margins for these women? I wonder, are there 1,000 clergy who will lead their congregations by signing the petition and circulating it so that our legislators will know that it is important and that they will support this budget amendment and pass it in 2021 so that all women who give birth can live to tell it in Virginia. 
Thank you all. Thank you all for your support. And my email address is available. If your congregation is circulating it, please send me an email to let me know. Um, again, it is very critical that our legislators hear from us. This is a short session, so things will be moving very quickly. And so I look forward to working with you all on this provision and many more um, to come in 2021. Thank you all. And as I say always, stay informed, stay inspired, stay connected. Thank you and have a wonderful day.